Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi, I'm Phil Craig. And I'm Andrew Loney. And together we aim to bring you the most scandalous stories and some of the most scandalous people in history. So thanks for joining us here on the Scandalmongers podcast. Well, greetings from Gaul in Sri Lanka. This international uh, podcast goes out to Southeast Asia. So we need to see where you are. Right. That's the sea out there. Oh my goodness! I am I'm sharing jealous. a, I'm sharing a villa with Sebastian Forks, but he hasn't emerged yet. I've been stalking him. <laughs> what are you doing? You're a glamorous international author, jet-setting lifestyle. Well, I've come to the literary festival here in Gaul, which is a wonderful old town with Portuguese and Dutch um, um, sort of history. Uh, and I interviewed yesterday Simon Sharma, all sorts of people are here, Christina Lamb, Peter Frankopan, uh, and uh, Sandy McCall-Smith, uh, so it's uh, Mary Beard, so it's it's fascinating, and we're meeting each other, I've, I've had a long chat with Anthony Horowitz, the the, the novelist, so it's... Uh, I can hear the names dropping, I can hear the names dropping all the way in the... Su- in the, from the Southern Hemisphere. I'm very jealous, actually. Yes, well, we'll get you here one day, and maybe some of those people will come and appear on our podcast. Oh, that'd be good. Yes, please recruit them all and, and tell them that your podcast partner is writing a groundbreaking book on the Second World War, which they definitely need to feature next year. Yes, okay, exactly. That would be good. <laughs> so, oh, well, um, yes, Luke. I'm so pleased for you. Well, um, our show last week had quite a reaction, Andrew. Not entirely positive, I must be honest. Yes, people said there was too much gossip, but actually, I you know did some research on Georgia Six, and certainly there are claims of mistresses if people don't want to believe them. Certainly with Lady Colin Campbell, and indeed other authors. And I mean, Tom, I think backed up certainly the case for Camilla Sykes. So I'm surprised that people got so upset. Well, we had, I mean, we did have a lot of people as 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 our, our listeners and viewers are very generous. Um, Elixir 1258, love listening to you both and your guests. 
Davina Wilson, thank you. Another fabulous episode. Blue Swallow Bird, I am all ears. This is great. Thank you. Lots of, oh, I love your podcasts. Lombard, 1955. Appreciate all of that. Um, so, yeah, you know, people were uh, generally quite enthusiastic about it, but a couple of people, you know, wanted to pick a fight with us um, or, t- or tell us that we were maybe getting near the edge of what, um, of what they thought acceptable in terms of gossip. I prefer a robust re- debate about the purpose and relevancy of the monarchy than tittle-tattle about people's sex lives, said Petra Lewell. Fair enough. Um, we do enjoy a bit of gossip now and again, but we also have done some serious things. I mean, the, the show we did about 1975, that's heavy constitutional stuff. Um, Sarah Williams was very, um, she said she likes the podcast, but a gossip with no real evidence is not the content I like. Uh, and then somebody jumped in, Taylor Jesse, to say, well, maybe so, but it's Tom's background. Tom Sykes's background made it interesting. I know he wasn't in the room, but it's not like he's stacking shelves in the local supermarket. He really is an insider. Uh, and then Sarah came back and she said, um, thanks, yes, I do agree the social history elements were fun. And I'll keep listening. So thanks for that. Yeah, well, I mean, he's certainly got a very interesting family background. And I wish we'd had a bit more time to talk about his father, who seems quite a character. Yes. No, I think it's, um, you know, we do love a bit of gossip. Um, we are called the scandal mongers. <laughs> We're not writing academic theses. Uh, we like to mix it up. And uh, Tom was, I mean, such an insight into that world. I can't get that story out of my head about his, was it his father's friend? He used to jump on a bus, trick the driver, and then drive to his club in the bus. And also just, you know, the the sort of humiliation some of these people go through just to remain part of sort of court circles. Yes, the the Um, man who had brandy poured on his head by the king. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's the side of the world, though. You know, I think we talked about George Bernard Shaw's comment about the connection between the royals and the great mass of the people is that they are not middle-class moralists. They're, They're a bit kind of raucous and rude and funny and sometimes offensive. Well, perhaps that's the secret of their success. Yes, no, and I think what was so unique about it was that I don't think Tom has spoken about that to anyone before. So this was fresh. You know, sometimes we just talk to all, to, to writers and they talk about their books, but this was really coming from the horse's mouth, uh, and he he's never talked about this uh, uh, his grandmother. So I, I think that was special. But but as you say, it's all very varied. We we mix the serious with the slightly more um, flippant. Yeah, and a lot of people liked it. You know, we've had. Um... Nearly 4,000 views in four or five days since that show went up. That's just on YouTube. So we're running at about ten to 11,000 listens a week now across all the platforms, which um, actually is pretty good. And if you're one of those people listening uh, every week, we're so very grateful. Um, What about this week, Andrew? What we got this week? Is it serious or is it not serious? Well, I hope it's a, a bit of both. I mean, we're looking at, I suppose, the royals and the law. Uh, and um, we're looking at two cases. Uh, we're talking to Di Davis again, head of former head of Royal Security, who's got, I think, some comments to make about the current situation with the royals. He, he does a very interesting lecture on assassination attempts over the, over the years against the royals, which I hope maybe he will talk about at some point in the future. And we're also talking about something which I'm interested in, and people have asked about, uh, the Oaks murder in July 1943 in the Bahamas with the involvement of the Duke of Windsor. And a lot of controversy there about the way the murder was handled and actually who may have committed it. Yeah, they're two stories 100 years apart, or 80-odd years apart. 
They're both about royalty and the law. Are we all equal before the law? Actually, Di got back in touch with us. He's already been on the show twice. And he wanted to say a few things more about Andrew and the way the police have behaved in that case, which I know is something you've also been digging into, haven't you? Yes, and a bit of controversy there. Uh, I did a, a piece for The Times last week about royal finances and the need to open some of these sealed wills of very minor members of the royal family and to have a bit more transparency about their wealth and the way they pass it on. And that's led to requests from newspapers to talk a bit more about Andrew and his role as a trade envoy and the problems of getting documents from the Department of Trade and Foreign Office. And so there's a big piece in the Mail on Sunday uh, which um, people will be able to see. It will have appeared yesterday. Brilliant, brilliant. Okay, so that's Di talking about Andrew and the relationship between the royals and law and money today. And then this Oaks case, It's I think we need to give a little bit of background because it's, say, it's over 80 years ago. It involves the Duke of Windsor. Um, quite a few people have written to us about it and asked us to do a show on it because it's one of these great unsolved Agatha Christie-style murders with ridiculously larger-than-life characters dying in extraordinary ways. Do you want to give us a kind of cast list, maybe? Yes. I mean, the, the, we're talking to Pat Worthen, who's a fingerprint expert and who helped me with my book and had a lot of new insights into the background to it. But it involves, I suppose, the largest landowner in the Bahamas, Sir Harold Oakes, who's murdered. Uh, there's the man who's the, the, the obvious suspect is a man called John Christie, who's a property developer there and has later knighted for his services. Uh, you have uh, a bit of a sort of uh, man about town, Count Alfred de Marigny, who's the man who's also accused and goes on trial uh, and is later deported. Uh, his uh, wife, uh, of only of 18, he married, who's the daughter of, of uh, Harold Oakes. Uh, you have... Um, so it's the son-in-law who goes on trial. It's the son-in-law who goes on trial. You have uh, clearly the Duke and his involvement and various policemen. You have uh, Erskine, uh, who is the local commissioner of police, uh, who's moved on uh, by the Duke for some reason. And then you have two cops from uh, Miami who are brought in to investigate the case, one of whom is subsequently killed by his son-in-law. Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, so it's quite a story. And as you say, there have been a number of accounts and no one has come up with a definitive solution. And indeed, the case has been uh, basically is, is the, the case has been covered up by Scotland Yard. None of the files have been released. Uh, and so we have to speculate. But I think both Pat and I uh, have some ideas about who committed it and why he committed it. Um, uh, and I'm sure he'll be talking about that. That sounds really good, because you know a lot about the Duke of Windsor. Obviously, you've written a fantastic book about him um, and his financial involvement with various figures um, in the Bahamas. I mean, is, is that a factor in this? Do you, is, there, is there money? Yes, it is. Absolutely. And Pat's good on that. And and, and uh, the, he'll be discussing, I suspect and I hope, the Banco de Continental, which was a, a bank that the Duke and others, including Christie and Oakes, were putting money into. So it's a, a little bit about sort of geopolitics at the time. In fact, I think in some ways, you know, the whole question of royal finance is maybe something we should look at, at in the future. You know, the sovereign grant, how it's spent, do we get value for money? Uh, and should there be a little bit more transparency about royal finances? Well, actually, that that links both the stories, doesn't it, in this week's episode, yeah. um, Andrew and, and the Oaks case. Okay, yeah, well, we well, try to have a theme. No, good. Well, if the way we're structuring this is there'll be this intro – and then we'll do the interviews, and then we'll assemble it all together, and there won't be a gap between them. So 
Um, you can always jump ahead if, if one story is more interesting to you than another, but I hope you find the whole show interesting. And we'll have to leave you, Andrew, swanning around with the literary elite in yes, the sunshine. I'm sorry, I'm about to go for a sail in the sunset and then off to dinner. Oh, my goodness, I'm so It's jealous. a hard life. It is a hard life. Oh, look at this. This is not such a hard <laughs> life. I'm you have your own personal assistant. assistant. Attractive <laughs> assistant. Hi, Francis. <laughs> Oh, making making a yes uh, an entry. The last Ferrero Rocher of Christmas, Scandalmongers. This oh. is much more fun than going sailing with Simon Sharma. <laughs> you tell us what you would prefer. Oh uh, well, have a great day, and I hope everybody enjoys the show. Bye now. Okay, bye. Hello, joining us from our Siberian studio, straight from Doctor Shivago. I think is that you, Di, under that hat. It is. This is one of my Siberian uh, tales I could tell you about when I, I was uh, actually bet that I wouldn't jump into lake uh, in Siberia, which had just unfrozen. And being me and being Welsh and idiotic, I jumped in and the Russian general bottled it, <laughs> not surprisingly. So well, it cost I'm... him this hat and his winter coat. Well, that's very funny. And also, you're, you know, do you realise you're the first person ever to appear on this podcast Three times. Well, I'm I'm honoured. You're going to get a little present heading oh, your good. way when I can when I get round to sending out another batch. That's very nice, kind. I I will treasure it. Um, a nice you, mug. I've got, got a, the I'll show you. I've, got a, I've got a Welsh mug here, <laughs> uh, which is slightly bent. But no right. prejudice against the Welsh or against anybody on this program, except for people like. who went who went to Andrew's old posh private school. We don't like them. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you've been in the news a lot recently, Di, because you've come out very strongly saying that there should be an investigation into Prince Andrew. C can you tell us where you are there? Well, essentially, uh, I've taken a great interest over the years in Andrew, only because I think uh, we, who've been paying millions for him throughout his life, from birth now until he's, I think, 62, we must have spent... 150, 200 million on protecting him, particularly when he was representing us. And I think having looked into the case, both with Channel 4 and with Panorama and being interviewed till I was blue in the face, I know quite a lot about this case, I think, modestly. I also have a, a friend who's an investigative journal, a journalist who, again, has spent years investigating this. And we've shared a great deal of uh, information and intelligence, which I can't always divulge, but it leaves me as a former and an investigator to lead. There's a great deal more to the whole case. And the big question is, is we had a British subject alleged to have committed offences, and I emphasize alleged, uh, and also uh, the person alleged to be doing it has now been incarcerated for 20 years. So there are questions for the Metropolitan Police, and they've been asked many times, and indeed a statement taken from Miss Roberts when she was known as Miss Roberts, why they are still refusing, one, to investigate sex trafficking against a, an American subject, but on British soil. And secondly, the principle behind the man was a British subject herself. So it seems to me incredulous that we can't have a better definitive. And I know others, like a Miss Fox, has asked numerous questions of them over the years and just asked for straightforward questions. Who decided? What level? And it was, we're now told, it was a commander. Then that man was uh, 
elevated to a deputy assistant commissioner, and there the trail seems to have gone cold. As I <laughs> understand it, the American authorities have asked cooperation. Allegedly, uh, they haven't had it. So it's a mystery, and I like mysteries, as you know, and I investigate mysteries. So what can be done? I mean, what pressure can be put? Because surely this actually, if he's an innocent man, he would want this investigation to be taking place. Well, that's what I said. If I was accused of such a serious crime, both not only here, but also uh, in the Virgin Islands and in New York, uh, again, not one, not two, not three, there's now four or five allegations. I appreciate some of them are in the US jurisdiction, and I understand their legal system works very differently to us. But uh, at the end of the day, excuse me, my phone is going, somebody wants me, um, but they're not going to have me now. So, yes, um, it is an interesting facet which has yet to be explained. And I say again, you know, everyone's innocent any until they're proved guilty. But if you don't investigate a crime, and now over half a century around the world, I've been investigating crimes from Jamaica to Siberia, Hong Kong to wherever. Uh, that's what I do. And I'm just perplexed and and. As you know, I like taking on those who hide behind authority. I mean, do you think the police protection officers should be required to give some evidence? Uh, I mean, well, do you think Buckingham Palace should be putting pressure, um, I mean, for their own sakes, and for the sake of the monarchy, that to well, come it, finally come yes. clean? Well, it, it, it is a mystery, isn't it? Uh, surely, anyone who has material evidence, either for Prince Andrew, and I, I emphasise for Prince Andrew, who can give him an alibi to say no. On day, day, time, place, he didn't go to Tramps. He didn't go to a muse. Uh, we weren't outside sitting in our car waiting for him. Uh, we didn't go to Tramps. We didn't go to the uh, Pizza Palace, whatever. Or in reverse, we did. And yes, you're perfectly right. Uh, but you have to have a criminal investigation. Uh, there are numerous what's... people. Suspicious Sorry. is that a lot of the evidence seems to have been destroyed. So, for example, the police logs for Buckingham Palace on the night when he is alleged to have been uh, 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 with Virginia Giffray have been destroyed. Now, is that is that a common practice to destroy well, again, logs like that so quickly? Well, I don't know is the honest answer because you know it's many years since, and, and it was with great respect, it was high above my level to know if there were logs. They were logs of people in and out. Uh, why they've disappeared? 20-odd years on or five years on or whatever it is, I don't know is the truth. What I do know is that these officers are highly competent. They travel the world. They're all very experienced police officers, and yet we haven't heard from anyone. Well, the excuse might be from some is, well, there's no investigation. Nobody has asked us. And again, I, I heard about a witness this week who said, well, nobody's ever asked me. And there are a woman called Ransom. Now, whether you believe people, but, you know, we are dealing with an individual who mixed with the most powerful around the world. And she now claims that she was forced by Epstein to, to uh, withdraw these allegations. Now, she seems credible to me. But again, unless you get a proper structured police investigation with competent, and I emphasize the word competent, uh, individuals, you'll never know the answers. But to my mind, anyway, and it's not with any malice uh, in that sense against Prince Andrew. It's just, I think, if it was you and I or any of us, we would have had a knock on the door, undoubtedly, uh, but, given the seriousness oh, of the offence. No, protection I, I, officer spoke, sorry, if sorry, you Andrew. spoke out, a police protection officer, would they be in trouble? I mean, if they were to suddenly say, no. look, I think 
I should, I should, I'm concerned that a crime may have taken place or didn't take place. I mean, would there be pressure put on them? People talk about well, Masonic influences in the police. Yes, that's an interesting question. I, as you, you know, I was chairman of London and the city's superintendents association and a vice chairman for some time. I defended the rights of people to be Masonic unless someone could show evidence that belonging to such an organization actually perverted the course of justice. And I never found any evidence. And I challenged the then commissioner and the head of internal affairs as the uh, representative show me evidence, but that none came forward. Now I've heard rumors and yes, I've always heard rumors. I never wanted to be one myself. I didn't find any need because as you know, I'm quite stroppy and I prefer women's company to men most of the time. So if there's a women's lodge, I might have joined that, but no, <laughs> seriously. They've missed a um, trip no, I, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a police officer or a bus driver. If you have material evidence and you either know or you deliberately, particularly as a police officer, if you know a crime has been committed, then you have a duty to report it and, and someone to take the appropriate action, uh, in my opinion. So, so as I understand it, the Metropolitan Police, Scotland Yard, they're accountable not to the royal family, they're accountable to the Home Secretary and through the Home Secretary to Parliament. Yes. Is that correct? So is there a mechanism that you could imagine by which somebody at the palace could bring pressure to bear, could let it be known they don't want an investigation? Is it feasible at all that that could happen? Or do you think it's more their second guessing? They're imagining, oh, we don't want to embarrass the royal family, so we won't do anything. It's a good question. I don't know. I mean, the initial trance was, is it's mostly not in our jurisdiction. It is being investigated. Uh, but the only one who's properly been investigated to a degree is Epstein and he's dead and the soundings, you know, people have conspiracy theories. Was, was he murdered? It, some of the issues around that are very strange to put it mildly. Uh, Maxwell is in prison. Uh, she stayed still. Uh, I don't know whether she has to serve a 20 year, but there's a lot of hidden secrets, uh, by her. So it's a, it's a, it's a question. Going back to Buckingham Palace, they now rode for the shore. Or as I often say, they were upstairs collecting fares if we were on a bus and they didn't see a thing and they didn't want to see a thing. Obviously, uh, somebody fed her late queen information which she felt was reasonable given that information to strip him of virtually everything. And that has remained with his brother, the king now. So you've got to ask a question. There must have been some credible evidence for them to do that. Otherwise, as I was listening to a program the other day on on, on, um, on GB News where the Sir, whatever his name is, um, he was saying everybody has the presumption of innocence. Well, I agree. But somebody in the Queen's advisory capacity said, well, these are the facts. Um, and despite his protestations, let's take everything away from him, all his titles, all his HRH. Don't give him any bung, any quarter of a million, 300,000 a year. Um, so you've got to ask your question, what did they know? And who decided that? Who advised the Queen? I come back to why aren't the police doing or did? And you've got to ask yourself, he went higher than a commander, even though he then promoted to DAC. And again, freedom of information requests have consistently uh, been sidelined, not answered properly for several years. And I yeah, think people give up. Andrew knows all about that. 
Because yes, exactly. But the Met haven't really explained what investigations they they actually initiated. No, they haven't. No, they so, haven't. I mean, even if they, I mean, we need a bit more detail. Even if they they found there was no case to answer, we need to know what that case was. Well, we do. And and what statements did they go back? Because I keep saying, back in the time uh, Miss Roberts made the allegations, um, every victim was to be believed, if you recall. And particularly, I've said, and I get no joy from it, but the record of the police in tackling sexual offences and rape in London and elsewhere is appalling. The conviction rate, I think, is about 2 to 3%. Now, something is chronically wrong with those decision-making. And I know the CPS allegedly, not allegedly, were, we're told, were actually consulted. But again, if they haven't done a proper investigation, they can only advise on the information and intelligence and information in front of them. So it beggars belief that they can make such an instant decision, given the notoriety of the case, the fact that when he was interviewed, he clearly was telling, I think, uh, a fabricated version of events. And then we find out that in a civil court, uh, he paid out allegedly $12 million or pounds to a woman he's never met in his life. You couldn't make it up. And then Amazing. when you actually examine records, airline records, so did she come to London? Yes, she did come to Injunction. Yes, he did go to Florida many, many times. Yes, police officers went with him. Didn't they see anything? Didn't they see pictures of genitalia on walls? Didn't they see dildos here, there, and everywhere? I mean, it just beggars belief, frankly. The circumstantial evidence and the court of public opinion clearly have found him guilty, as have Buckingham Palace. His own mother. And, and nobody has said that until... His own mother sorry. did. His own mother did, obviously, as you say. Yeah, so Even all evidence was given to them. She, you, she probably you wouldn't do back. that, would you? It's like me saying to some of my children, well, I'm sorry, you've had this allegation, you've been a bit naughty. Uh, that's it, um, you're out. Uh, so there must have been some credible information, is my point, which no commentator as far as I know, has ever actually articulated. And lastly, oh, I'll say is, what a message we're sending out to females. We're meant, most of us, to be supportive of victims, of um, men and women attacking them uh, sexually. What message does it send that if you go to the Metropolitan Police, even though they have jurisdiction anywhere in the world, if it's a British subject alleged to be doing it, what message are we sending out to women? They've already... <laughs> Pardon, uh, cocked but up so he, many investigations that it just beggars belief. Has he committed a crime? I mean, he's he's basically uh, a, a young girl's gone out to dinner with him. He doesn't know her age. Uh, she, she's been made of you know. Uh, of, there's been sex, which seems to be consensual. I mean, though she may have been trafficked, he may not know that. Uh, and so, I mean, he may have been foolish, but has he committed a crime? Well, that's that's the big multi-dollar question, isn't it? Yes, if he knew, and it's alleged by some, including Miss Ransom, uh, the one who withdrew some of these allegations, i.e. Clinton and co. and so forth, if he knew she was being trafficked, if on uh, the man on the Clapham omnibus thought a reasonable man, a mature man, looked at a girl barely looking 16 or 17, it might have crossed your mind, surely, as a mature Man in his position, um, surely you might have questioned, you might have asked. I, not that I've been in that circumstances. I, but like his lawyer, you know, I, 
I haven't had, you know, 50 years sort of thing. What I'm trying to say is uh, that's the question that has to be asked because trafficking, everybody says, oh, she was the age of consent. But if she was made to, as it's alleged by her, made to have it, and that they knew that then and they colluded, and not just there, but also there's independent evidence allegedly in New York of uh, sexual behavior there, and again in, in this uh, little Virgin Island, little St. James, as it's called. So all I'm saying is, if it was me, I'd start with his entourage, I'd start with his protection officers. I'd start because don't forget, wherever he went, he took people to iron his shirts and carry his his ironing board. Also, whenever he was in charities, and we know about the outward bound lot, um, it, it, there was about three or four people going around with him, um, and yet they all collectively had loss of memory. Well, the well, outward bound thing we should explain is he claimed to have gone to outward bound in Boston and, in fact, didn't go, though it's in the court circular. He 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 basically cancelled them and went and spent time with, with Epstein in New York, didn't he? Well, he spent three That's or four days. He spent three or four days. And despite knowing he was a paedophile, despite obviously seeing uh, the images that were around, uh, both in toilets, on walls and everything else, I mean... What happened to security, his security? Because the role is they fly out and do wreckies before he goes anywhere. And that's a matter of record. Well, were they dumb, deaf or blind? Well, I think one of the things that's happened in the past, we go back to the Burrell trial. Paul Burrell was suspected of of stealing um, uh, some of Lady Diana's um, uh, uh, things uh, and was, I mean, the CPS and everyone wanted to prosecute. And the whole thing was shut down when the Queen suddenly at the last minute remembered, uh, not having claimed to know anything about this trial, that in fact Burrell had said that he was keeping all these intimate family things, pictures and letters for safekeeping. I think uh, what also emerged is he hasn't sort of given these things back but it, you know the 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 suggestion was that um Burrell would have gone into the witness box and made a number of claims which the royal family didn't want to be made public do you think that's that's fair well it's an interesting uh, aspect which i've pondered a great deal uh knowing some of the background to how uh queen camilla and king charles actually set about making her the queen she is today and the alleged shenanigans that went on there with various components and people. What struck me is every morning when I went in, I had a total uh, briefing on every aspect concerning the royal family in the papers. It was prepared for me by the time I went in or by certainly by 9am when we had our briefing. And so I knew precisely everything that could possibly affect from the paper and the press what happened. Now, as far as I was aware, Her Majesty the same. She got the papers every day. Uh, she had a private secretary, deputy private secretary, and they would have briefed her. So she, with huge respect, um, I don't know why she didn't know the trial was going. In terms of those allegations, if you read various component parts, the Met were blamed for a false investigation. The then Detective Chief Inspector, uh, De Brum, I think her name was, um, she was wide, widely castigated. But in truth, if you actually look at the evidence, he had well over a thousand items. And again, it beggars belief, in my humble opinion, that um, anyone would believe that he had a legitimate right to it. Some of them were very intimate stuff. So 
No, and, did and, I believe... and he was selling it in, in the States. He had yeah, a, well, that's a... how he came around, because not only was he selling it, but Prince Charles, as he was then, was giving to his uh, people like Fawcett, who in turn, and, and some butlers, um, they, they were selling these things. I absolutely couldn't make it up. But again, nobody investigated that. We must but certainly have you back for that we story. We will. And I hope your heating comes on and you won't need to wear that. Well, it's got, yeah, the lights red. have come on. So that's the result, really. And we've we got log fires. So, And I've got right. my hat on because I'm follically challenged, as you know. And so <laughs> this gave me my head warm. And it's time. It's only Thursday, five, whatever. But it's time for a glass of something, I think. I think it probably is. Okay, mate. Love it to talk well, to listen, you Well, listen, I should look Thanks forward to ever. listening. Can I listen to your program and, and about Prince Eddie? You are allowed. It will be on Monday. Kind of, and I'll hold you to hand about that that um, mug. Yep. In the, it, takes it's in the post. Mug to know, it takes one mug to know it, and I'm it, certainly a big mug. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the post along with the check. Anyway, thank you, mugs. Talk As to always, later. thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, Pat, thank you so much for joining us to talk about a subject you know a lot about, the Harry Oakes murder. Can, can you sort of tell us, the, the listeners, a little bit about exactly what happened in July 1943? Well, Harold Christie, who was a prominent businessman, a real estate agent, developer in the Bahamas, uh, the night before July 7th, <clears throat> he had had... Um, dinner and had stayed over at the home of Sir Harry Oakes, who was the richest baronet in the British Empire. Had uh, Harry Oakes had moved to the Bahamas as a tax shelter. He was the owner of the second richest gold mine in history at Kirkland Lake, Canada. And like all rich people, he didn't like paying taxes. So he had moved to the Bahamas. And he had extensive business dealings with Harold Christie. He spent the night, Christie spent the night at Oakes's mansion. Oakes's family was in New York on a shopping trip at the time, so Oakes was alone. And in the morning when Christie woke up, he went down to, um, when Christie woke up, he went down to Harry Oakes's room to wake him up for breakfast and discovered Oakes's, Oakes's body. Oakes had been murdered during the night. And in a panic then, he called the Royal Bahama Police. A couple of officers on duty arrived, uh, followed shortly by Colonel uh, R.A. Erskine Lindop. Erskine Lindop was the police commissioner. Lindop looked the scene over, went to the governor's mansion where he met with uh, the Duke of Windsor, who had been reassigned to the Bahamas for the duration of World War II as the governor of the Bahamas. And he advised um, the Duke that Christie had been, or that Oakes had been murdered. Um, and then the story unfolded from there. Gosh, and I mean, Oakes, um, I mean, how would he be murdered? I mean, what was the, the, the crime scene? What did it look like? Well, it's believed that the uh, fatal wound was above his left ear on his temple. There were several small holes. And there was a trace of blood running down up his cheek and across his nose. The problem was, of course, he was laying on his back in bed. And therefore, the blood would have flowed from those wounds down to the back of his head. So obviously, he had been murdered somewhere else and then placed in his bed. His bed and some of the other furniture in the room was a, a set on fire or attempted 
to be set on fire. It's believed that a pump sprayer of insecticide was the accelerant used. However, a, a violent thunderstorm hit the island, and the blowing wind, the mist, the rain apparently put the fire out before it had a chance to to really catch. Oaks's bedclothes were burned off of him. The mosquito netting was burned. The sheets and pillowcases were burned. And it was uh, sort of a macabre scene because the feathers in the pillow had blown around and stuck to Oaks's charred flesh. So that was the scene that met Christie when he walked into Oaks's bedroom. And uh, Christie was, on- Christy was a... Christie was seen by some as the obvious suspect at first, wasn't he? Given that he was staying in the house. And, well, and at yes. the beginning, I know it gets more complicated than this. Well, and I, my study of the case led me to believe that Christie himself was too much of a, of a wimp and a coward to have committed the murder himself. I believe he called it in. Oh, really? Seems to be the general theory, but that's not exactly what happened in the case, is it? Because um, then was a very strange. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Development then, because they didn't rely on the on the police there. They, they called in outside police to deal with this. Why, why did they do that and who did that? Well, the governor did that, the Duke of Windsor, because after he had talked to Christie, well, let me back up a minute, because here's where the story takes its public turn. Um, Oakes had an appointment with Etienne Depew that morning. Etienne Depew was the editor of the Nassau Times. Uh, Christie was supposed to have had a herd of 5,000 sheep imported from Australia onto one of the out islands for Oakes. And it was supposed to have arrived a few days before. Oaks and Depew were going to go out and look at this herd of sheep. And, of course, Depew was going to report on it in the uh, Nassau Times. Well, as Christie was standing there looking at the body, the telephone rang in Oaks's room, and it was at and Depew. And Depew asked about Harry Oaks, and Christie said he's been murdered. And Depew says, murdered? And um, Christie said, yes, I've just found his body. And Depew, the newspaper man, said, well, my God, man, have you called the police? And Christie said, well, no, I, I just found the body. And Depew says, well, hang up and call the police immediately. Well, of course, Christie did. 
But in the meantime, the newspaper editor now has the story, and he immediately sent wires out worldwide announcing that Harry Oaks had been murdered. Now, uh, Christie calls the police. The first two officers arrive, followed shortly by Erskine Lindop, the commissioner. Lindop talks to Christie, looks at the scene, and as fast as he can then, uh, rushes over to the governor's mansion to notify the Duke. Interestingly, the Duke locks himself in his apartment for two hours and doesn't come out, doesn't say a word. And after two hours, he comes out and announces censorship. No word of this must be leaked from the island. Well, uh, the Duke was not effective at very much in his life. And that was something, again, he was not effective at because the story had been on the wires worldwide for two hours. At that it's a strange point. thing for the Duke to do. I mean, did he panic? Um, I mean, did he just not know what to do? Uh, just maybe rushing things ahead a bit, but um, yeah, it seems uh, a strange Duke, decision. Because then he calls I, outsiders, doesn't he? He doesn't call in people from the RAF base or, or anywhere else. Well, that's true. He had Erskine Lindop. He had a good police force there in the Bahamas who knew the customs, who knew the people who could talk to people who had the sources, and instead of utilizing his own police, he called over to the Miami Police Department and talked to Captain Eddie Melkin. Eddie Melkin was the captain of the Homicide Bureau for the Miami Police. And the Duke told Melkin, one of our prominent citizens has just committed suicide, and we need you to come tidy things up a bit. Suicide? Yes, that that's was what the Duke. Yeah, that's tidy what the Duke. Up a bit. It's an interesting. Tidy, yeah, just tidy things up a bit. Well, Melkin uh, was good friends with Captain James Otto Barker, and Barker was the head of the identification and crime scene unit for the Miami Police. So Melkin and Barker catch the next plane and fly over to Nassau to tidy things up in this suicide that they're being called in to look at. Well, of course, it wasn't a suicide at all. Um, and from the, from the start, then, they bungled everything they could. Um, there was a memo from J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI a couple of years before this warning his agents in Miami that Barker was in the pay of the mafia and to be very careful in dealing with him. Now, of course, some of the um, some of the theories surrounding the Harry Oaks murder, uh, one of the prominent ones was that the mafia had had him killed, that Meyer Lansky, um, working for Lucky Luciano, who was in prison at the time, that Meyer Lansky was trying to build a gambling empire in the Bahamas, Christie, of course, would have been the primary developer and real estate agent in in helping Lansky build this uh, gambling empire. And so the idea was that Oaks did not want this little backcountry island that he, he saw as a paradise. He did not want that turned into a gambling mecca with all of the noise and crime and things that would have gone with that. And so... Oaks was blocking the mafia from getting into the Bahamas. Um, I, I have never believed that story. I think that was a story planted by Lucky Luciano himself. He was losing control of the mob then. And I believe Luciano planted that story 
in order to enhance his own credibility. Hey, look, I can pull off a hit on the richest baronet in the British Empire and get away with it. Right. So I think, uh, yeah, I think Lansky took credit for it to boost his own image in his failing empire, but I don't really think he organized the murder. Now, one, thing, one thing I don't quite get immediately is it must have been quite unusual for a governor of a, a chunk of the British Empire who had himself been the king of England, um, the, the emperor of that empire, in fact, for a few months at least. Why would he look to America to find some policemen? Had that ever happened before? <laughs> do you have any sense of why he might have done that? Oh, absolutely, I do. I've got my own theory on that. Um, and I'll go ahead and jump ahead to that, and then we can talk about the uh, supporting information yep. um, that I've learned. I believe that when Erskine Lindop arrived at the murder scene, Christie was in a state of shock. I don't think Christie spent the night there at all. Uh, well, there was I a think- sighting of him in, in the middle of, of Nassau, wasn't there, uh, with his brother. The policeman saw them in a car. Well, that's right. Um, he saw Christie, but he also saw a stranger in the car. And the stranger was driving the car. And that was Sergeant Sears, I believe, that saw them. Yep. Um, here's the, 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 I think the, the precipitating cause of the murder was there were no sheep. Ah. And I think that Christie knew that when Oakes and Depew went to that island and discovered there were no sheep, the game was up. I think Christie had diverted Oakes's money into some other development. And I think he knew if Oakes blew the whistle on him, it would ruin him. I think Meyer Lansky was involved. I believe that Christie called Lansky and said, look, we need to build this gambling empire, but I need to get rid of Oaks because he's going to destroy me. So I think uh, Lansky did send a couple of mafia hitmen over by one of the old super fast rum runner speedboats that night while Christie was supposed to be sleeping at Oaks's mansion. I think Christie picked them up at the wharf at, at uh, Lyford, Lyford Key and took them up to the mansion. I think they did the murder. And then I think Christie took them back to Lyford Key. And I believe that they had set the house on fire and Christie expected to return and find the whole house burned to the ground. Ah, which would have been convenient for him. Oh, but yes, because... The, but what would when he arrived, I mean, for not being in the house? I mean, because people would have said, you know, seen him that evening staying oh. on there. He simply would have said he went home to his own cottage that night. He lived alone. Right. And then he got up early to go join Harry Oaks with Etienne Depew. But when he arrived, lo and behold, the mansion is still standing. And as he runs up the stairs, he sees that the fire never caught in the first place. They were so, lucky with the, with the, with the storm. Cause also Christie had a background as a, as a bootlegger, didn't he? I mean, he had oh, yes. oh, organized yes. crime. He had run rum up to um, uh, Lucky Luciano and the mob during Prohibition. So he had some of his own fast boats, too. That was where he had gotten his seed money to become a developer and a real estate agent. So I think when Etienne Depew, no, Erskine Lindop, the police commissioner, 
when he arrives, Christie is still so shaken up by this turn of events, and he can see the whole house of cards tumbling down around him. And I think he blurted out the entire story to Erskine Lindop, and Lindop ran over to the governor and said, look, Christie just murdered Oaks, and this is going to cause a major scandal. And I think the Duke then spent the two hours he was locked in his room trying to figure out how to avert a catastrophe. And so he came up with the suicide story, but Erskine Lindop, I believe, was a man of enough integrity that he refused to go along with it. And, and that's why he got was then also posted to Trinidad, wasn't he? He was moved across. Shortly before the trial. Now, here's where I found a source that nobody else had talked to. I taught classes in Trinidad down in 1993 and 94. And, of course, uh, Trinidad and Tobago had received independence from Great Britain back in 1964, I believe. And most of the whites in Trinidad had gone home. When I was down there, Trinidad and Tobago was about 40% black, 40% um, Indian, and 20% Asian. Uh, whites, it, it, if you saw a white person down there, he was either a tourist or a businessman who had been tempor temporarily reassigned there. But back in 1943, the police force was all white. And so when I was teaching in Trinidad, I put word out through the police department, the Trinidad, uh, the Royal Trinidad and Tobago Police. I put word out through them that I needed to, or I wanted to talk to any white police officer that might still have been around from 1943. And lo and behold, the last night I was there, I got a phone call from Captain Colin Frazier. And Captain Frazier had worked with Erskine Lindop and knew him well. And I asked Frazier if, if Lindop had ever mentioned a murder that occurred in the Bahamas before he was transferred to Trinidad. And Captain Frazier told me, he said, oh, yes. He said, Lindop talked incessantly about that damned murder. Um, he had made it plain to the Duke that he would not allow an innocent man to hang, and the Duke had transferred him to Trinidad so that he could not testify at the trial. Gosh. And who was the innocent man that, that, that you've mentioned here? Because someone innocent, brought in. The innocent man that was framed by Barker and Melkin, the two corrupt Miami detectives. The innocent man was Alfred de Marinay. Now, de Marinay was a British citizen by birth. He was born in Mauritius when Mauritius was part of the British Empire. But, of course, Mauritius had been French before England took possession of it. And so uh, de Marinay was French by ancestry and entitled to use uh, the, the, the title of Count. He was Count Alfred de Marinay. And he was a thorn in the side of of um, the Duke and and the, the Bay Street Boys, the business organization, informal business organization that ran Nassau in the Bahamas. And so by framing him for the murder of Harry Oaks, the Duke felt like he could kill two birds with one stone. He could protect Christie 
and this this um, budding gambling empire that was going to be built there. And at the same time, he could get rid of de Marinay, who was a thorn in, in the side of the British Empire, or at least a thorn in his side in the Bahamas. Um, I had the good fortune to to meet de Marinay and have a couple of good visits with him uh, before he passed away in the late 90s. I mean, he Gosh. made quite a good villain, if you wanted to create a villain, didn't he? He had a very colorful life. Lots of marriages that didn't last very long, and he was married to the daughter of the dead guy, who I think he married when the girl was sixteen. Or, sorry, eighteen. Yeah, she was three days past uh, age of majority when he married her. So you and might think he was a bit of a an operator, perhaps, who exploited vulnerable young women. Maybe. Well, uh, look at the Duke of Windsor. He married Wallace Warfield Simpson, and she was twice divorced American. Good point. So. Which was the whole reason he had to abdicate the throne. The, the British people would have never accepted uh, Wallace as their queen. And well, um, what what you're saying is that the Duke of Windsor was prepared to let an, an innocent man go to the scaffold to protect basically the reputation of the island and uh, and and cover for people like Christie. Yes, I believe that's true. I believe yeah. that was the plan. But of course, that's not what that these these two detectives from Miami, they work very hard to put this other man who we just mentioned in the, in the frame, and he's the one that goes to trial, facing the death penalty. Um, that's great. So and the evidence how does that is- trial? I mean, what, explain that process because it's it all sounds like you know the, the perfect Agatha Christie with all these amazing characters, and they all seem kind of slightly mad. Oh. Well, the if, evidence if, is fingerprint evidence, isn't it, for Demario? Yes. If if you wrote a fiction novel with a cast of characters like this, nobody would believe it. It's too outrageous. Uh, we're at the height of World War II in 1943, and yet the New York Times carried 75 articles on that murder in the last six months of 1943. That's with the amazing. war going on in Europe, that case was still so sensational. 75 articles. Well, you understand they're one of the richest men in the world. There's a love triangle or there's a sex theme, possibly a seduced daughter. There's all sorts of dodgy business dealings. There's the mafia. There's a member of the royal family. There's death. <laughs> there's a court case. It's I mean, it been turned to films several times. But what was the evidence against Matt DeMarini? <laughs> the, the sole physical evidence was one latent fingerprint or um, a mark, a finger mark. And it was developed on a Chinese dressing screen, one of these folding screens that was in the scene of the murder. Now, uh, de Marinet had never been in that room of the house. I don't think he had even been to the house itself for two years prior to the murder. Uh, he and Oakes were not enemies, as most of the literature portrays. They were not good friends, but they had reached a, a sort of an understanding, a, a detente, if you will. They had several business dealings together. They, they were not friends. They were not enemies. They were not close business associates, but they tolerated each other. Christie, tol- I mean, Oaks tolerated de Marinay because after all, de Marinay was married to his daughter and it was a happy marriage. Um, de Marinay tolerated Oaks because Oaks was a powerful man and they did have some business dealings together. Um, so, but there was a shock during the trial because this, this, uh, fingerprint on the Chinese screen, 
he had good defense counsel and they were able to raise certain questions, weren't they? Uh, oh, yes. about this fingerprint. And I think you are a fingerprint expert. So, I mean, you can speak a lot to this. Well, that's the truth. Uh, I got into this case because I was going to charge a police officer in Arizona with fabricating fingerprint evidence. And I knew if I was going to do that, I would have to become an expert on fingerprint fabrication. And consequently, in my research, I stumbled across this case. And it's sort of an endless case. No matter how many alleys you go down, there are more alleys to explore. And so I became fascinated with the case, um, called people, talked to people, talked to DeMarinet himself. He lived in Houston at the time. And then when I was down in Trinidad, that gave me the perfect opportunity to try to find people who had known Erskine Lindop down there. And so what emerged at the trial was that this, this fingerprint had been lifted and planted on the glass to incriminate De Marigny. And well, the trial collapsed, didn't it? Right. The, I think the, the all of the evidence is is fairly conclusive that the fingerprint was lifted off of a drinking glass that De Marigny used during the two-hour police interview with him. And then it was lifted with a bicycle patch and labeled or marked as having come from that dressing screen at the scene of the crime. Now, here's the problem. The physical dimensions of that fingerprint were greater than the area of the dressing screen from which um, Barker claimed to have lifted the print. In other words, the print was bigger than the area it was supposed to have come from, the finger mark. And it had a sort of clear background, didn't it? So Yes, and the... the Mark itself had some mechanically perfect circles or dots in it. And there were no such dots on the screen. But there was a style of drinking glass in the 30s and 40s that had painted polka dots on it, uh, which were perfectly consistent with the dots on this, this lifted finger mark. Um, but there was, well, there was evidence against Damarini. I mean, he couldn't account totally for his movements that night. His, his, um, alibi came from a friend of his, Vidalou. Uh, he had, uh, burnt marks on his arm, suggesting that he perhaps had been involved in some sort of fire. Uh, I think he couldn't account for items of clothing, which seems to have been destroyed. So, I mean, there was, you know, there was a case there for him. And indeed, I think Scotland Yard, looking at the case again after the war, said that, you know, they weren't looking for any more suspects. They thought DeMarini was the man. Well, I think if they had tried to go after uh, uh, the Duke, it would have been worse for them. Um, when I talked to DeMarini, was fastidious. He would change shirts maybe three times or more per day. He did not like being sweaty, uh, having stains. He liked being clean and crisp. Uh, so it didn't surprise me that he didn't have the shirt anymore. In fact, when, uh, when I talked to him, I mentioned the movie Murder in Paradise. Armand Asante played the part of Freddie de Marinet. And I don't know if you've seen that movie. No, I, I asked, no, oh, yeah, pa uh, Murder in Paradise. No, Passion in Passion in Paradise, Passion in Paradise. I asked de Marinet if he had seen that movie, and in this charming French accent, he says, oh, yes, that 
terrible little short man played the part of me, and he wore <laughs> the same filthy shirt for the entire movie. Because <laughs> um, also during the trial, the Duke absented himself. He didn't really want to be involved with this. He was distancing himself from the whole story, wasn't he? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, he left it up to Melkin and Barker. And they were thoroughly discredited on the witness stand. The defense team, well, this was such a popular case. Um, I mentioned the New York Times carrying 75 articles on it in six months. Um, Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the whole Perry Mason series, one time in his whole career worked as a a newspaper correspondent, and that was for the Harry Oaks trial. He was a fiction writer. But his name was such that uh, uh, one of the newspaper syndicates hired him as their reporter for that trial. Nancy Oakes, DeMarinay's wife, hired Raymond Schindler to come down and investigate the murder. Schindler was a, a, a private investigator to the, to the stars. Rumor has it that he required a $1 million cash uh, retainer before he would even look at a case. He spent uh, weeks down there investigating this case. The International Association for Identification, fingerprint and crime scene experts from all over the world, was deeply interested in this case because James Otto Barker was on the board of directors of the IAI the International Association for Identification, and Barker had actually hosted the 1941 IAI conference in Miami. And so Barker had a lot of political power in the uh, International Fingerprint Association. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm searching back for names that don't come as easily to me as they did a half a century ago. I think you two know a lot more about the story than I do, but I'm thinking our listeners don't know as much as any of, 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 of any of us on this call. So, have I got this right? You think that the man was murdered, driven by Christie, because of his dealings with the mafia, because of the, the desire to build the casinos. They framed the French husband, the son-in-law, but they framed him so incompetently with fake fingerprints that the trial collapsed. That's correct. But what I don't get is why the Duke of Windsor, in the middle of World War II, would 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 deem it such an important thing for him to do. Because what 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 would he possibly benefit from this? You know, this man Christie getting away with murder, which is what we're effectively saying happened. But well, but he Christ had he had involvement, didn't he, with both Christie and Oakes? Uh, and maybe oh. you should talk about his financial um, uh, relationship with them. Oh, yes, they were very close. See, Oaks had built the first hospital in the Bahamas uh, for about $50,000 at the time. And it was by virtue of of building that hospital and giving it to the Bahamas, to the people of the Bahamas, that he was knighted as Sir Harry Oaks. Um, the first airport in the Bahamas was Oaks Field, Oaks built that airport. Now, that was an interesting arrangement. Oaks wanted to build the airport. Christie wanted to be the developer. Christie didn't have the, the money to develop it. So Oaks loaned the money to Christie to build that first airport. 
then Christie gave the money back to Oaks to buy the equipment and to build the airport. It, it was quite a convoluted deal. And of course, the, the Duke of Windsor was knee deep in that himself. One of the photographs of the time shows the Duke pouring the first bucket of cement on the runway of Oaks Field. Now, here's another situation that comes into play. That airfield was good for small propeller planes. It would have never been any good for jet planes. And Christie realized that while the the original Oaks Field would work for the small planes of businessmen coming and going, if his dream of turning the Bahamas into a tourist mecca was ever going to come about, there would need to be a bigger airfield and one that could handle these new jet planes that were just coming into use in World War II. And so a, a new ag- arrangement was cut between Oaks and Christie. Oaks loaned the money to Christie to build this new airport on a handshake deal. Christie was going to again hire Oaks to build this larger airport. Well, that's not the way it worked. Christie turned around and hired Meyer Lansky and some of his construction companies out of Florida to build this second airport. But that the, doesn't put the Duke of Duke of Windsor in the frame in any way. I mean, no. he was developing the island, but there were other relationships, weren't there, uh, that, that to do with money and money being transferred out of the Bahamas. Yes, and therein comes the Nazi connection. Um, as you as you know, the the, uh, the Duke of Windsor um, was not in entirely uh, against Hitler or the Nazis in Europe. In fact. I've, uh, I think your book goes very well into detail, Trader King, about how he was collaborating with the Nazis. And lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. But, well, I mean, we come on to the Bank of Continental. Um, there were, there were, right. they were also in, in, involved in, in basically taking the, money out of the island and, and yes, investing the, in Mexico. The Banco Continental was run by Maximiliano Camacho, who was the brother of the president of Mexico at the time. And Banco Continental was primarily a stash house for Nazi war loot being smuggled out of Europe. Not everything went to South America. Quite a bit of the old Germans and their loot went into Mexico. And the Banco Continental was the the primary location in Mexico where war loot was being stashed by the Nazis. Um, and the Duke had put investment into this as well. He, he had about put some money there. Right. He had uh, quite a bit of the, of his money, the royal coffers, in Banco Continental. Oaks had moved about $15 million of his money into Banco Continental through Maximino Camacho. And a lot of the money coming out of Europe was coming through Axel Venegren. Venegren was a Swedish businessman who was supplying ammunition and war goods to the Nazis. And he was supposedly running the loot from Europe to Mexico on his yacht, the Southern Cross, which had originally been Howard Hughes's yacht. Oh, my God, we have Nazis in the mix now. It just gets better and better. But it, also, Venegren was very close to the Duke. I mean, that he would, they were two best pals, really. And oh, he yes. would lend his, his yacht to the Duke um, to, to, to go cruising around the islands. And, and 
So, I mean, they were all they were all sort of connected here, weren't there? But it's been very difficult for people to find out much about the Banco Continental. The records just don't exist, do they? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, the best program that I have seen was a documentary produced by the uh, Canadian Broadcast Corporation. I believe you traced that down, Andrew. Um, I saw that back in the late 90s, one time. And they tracked down all of Oakes's financial records and showed that at the time of his death, he was missing about $15 million from what his estate should have had. And that's the money that I believe he had moved to the Banco Continental. And I think what happened after the murder was that Christie and the Duke and Maximino Camacho realize that Oaks's $15 million is sitting there in the bank and nobody knows about it. Therefore, that's money up for grabs. And I believe they split it three ways. Now, I don't know if it was equal shares or not, but I believe the Duke took a good portion, $5 million or more of Oaks's money from his estate and took it back to England with him after the war. Gosh. I, t- I talked to an uh, elderly fingerprint officer, police officer, uh, who had been active back in the 40s in England. And he, uh, when I explained that to him, when I presented him with that theory, he said, well, that would explain it. He could never understand how the Duke and Wallace went to the Bahamas, spent lavishly remodeling the governor's mansion, shopping trips to Miami and New York, and money just leaving the accounts like crazy. And yet, when the Duke returned to England, he had more money than when he went to the Bahamas. Yes, it was a great concern of of the American authorities. They were were looking at his banking records because they couldn't work out where all this money was coming for the shopping trips. And you think it could have been the money that that, that, uh, Oaks had put in this bank, this dodgy bank, and uh, then they they cleaned it out after he was killed? Gosh. You know, there's a Scotland Yard file as well, and there's a a memo from the FBI to Scotland Yard. Again, that's still closed. I think this material will be destroyed. That wouldn't surprise me. The, I had heard that they had a 100-year seal on them and that they would be made uh, public in 2043. Uh, I won't be around then, but uh, it would be interesting. Gosh, well, we can only live and hope, really. It's um, So when is your book coming out? Well, when, you've got to still finish it. Well, we. I was up in uh, Oregon the last half of November. And my co-author and I finished the manuscript then. Uh, We've got uh, several other authors reading it and making suggestions. And we're going to start shopping around for an agent, a publishing company in the near future. Great. Well, we'll I can recommend an agent. He's on this call. (laughs) Yes, we should talk. Uh, Well, I'd be happy to. Um, I do not want to self-publish it. I don't want to go through Amazon publishing. I want it to come out in hardbound copy where it will be available in libraries, law libraries, uh, forensics libraries, and can serve as a reference book. Because while I open this book with with a thorough discussion of the Oaks case, 
I go also into discussions of of six or eight other erroneous identifications and and fingerprint fabrication cases that were of worldwide importance in the fingerprint community. And my my purpose for writing this book was threefold. Number one, I want other fingerprint experts to know that you can't always trust the evidence, that there are dishonest cops out there who will fabricate evidence and then submit it to a fingerprint expert to make the identification. And I want them to be aware of that. Number two, I want defense attorneys to read this book so that they don't just continue to attack evidence on how many points of identification were there. Because that's the the main attack that defense attorneys use, even when the evidence is fabricated. The, The defense community needs to broaden their view and hire experts who know how to evaluate fingerprint evidence, not just attack a fingerprint case on how many points were there. And then the th- the third target audience I have is the general public who like true crime novels. Uh, except in this, it's not a novel; it's a true a true crime um, a compilation where the cops are the bad guys. I think we should have you back to talk about one of these cases, another yeah, scandal, and, and before twenty forty three. Definitely. Yes. But very nice you to meet much. you, Pat. Thank you for yeah. leading us through this incredibly fascinating story. I learned a lot, you know, a lot of stuff like, you know, even we hadn't talked about before. So there's some really fresh stuff here. Well, well good. Well, I'm glad. I'm thank glad. You. It's been a pleasure and I've enjoyed visiting with you also. Well, thank, thank you so you. much. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Scandalmongers podcast. This has been a podcast world production. You can get in contact with our show by emailing team at podcastworld.org, placing Scandalmongers in the heading, or via our social media links within the show's bio. 